morning. If you will, please turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. That is 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. And it reads as follows. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he has puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Thank you, and please be seated. It is a great privilege for me to be able to worship with you, not only today, but every time that we come together. And I'm always very grateful for the men who lead us in our worship service, beautiful singing, and thank you for your fine participation, for the prayers that have been offered today, for the men who waited on the table. I'm always very grateful for them and the fine way that they lead us in worship. And I hope and trust that if you're visiting with us today, you'll see how important worship is to us, that it is planned after the pattern given to us in the New Testament, that we follow the teaching of the New Testament to please the Lord and to worship Him in spirit and in truth, and that we have done today. We will come back again tonight, Lord willing, at 6 o'clock, and study His wonderful Word and worship Him again, and what a great privilege it is. David once said, that it was a joy to me when they said to me, let us go up into the house of the Lord. He rejoiced over that. And so we rejoice today over the prospect of being able to worship God as the Bible teaches. We've read this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. And you have to be impressed with the fact that Paul is warning the young preacher Timothy about those who will not teach the truth and are involved in error. They had a problem with that at the church at Ephesus. As Paul left Timothy there at Ephesus to preach and teach and minister to that great congregation of God's people. But throughout the book, he warns him, there are people who will not follow the Word of God. They will not follow the truth. Well, chapter 6 is not the first time that we've heard him say that. He says that also in 1 Timothy chapter 1. In verse 7 and 8, He reminds him of these important matters. I'll begin the reading at verse 6. Certain persons, he says, by swearing from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down For the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers. Verse 9. He's warning him about false teachers. He's warning him about people who would come along and would not abide by the teaching of Christ and accept that and live by it. And so he says, you're going to have to be on guard about this particular matter. 
You know why, Timothy? Because truth matters, Timothy. Truth matters. Timothy was living in a day much like ours where people would come along and try to bend the truth to their own device and try to make it say something it was never intended to say. Once again, he warns Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And he tells him about certain matters which will come about that we need to be aware. In that particular passage, he says, Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So once again, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, he warns them about a growing philosophy, though he does not use the, the philosophy of asceticism. Asceticism is the view that says, if I will deprive myself of physical pleasure, then I can have a closer relationship with God. If I deprive myself of all physical pleasure, then I can be more spiritually minded. I can be more like God wants me to be. It was a false view. It sounded rather good, sounded very interesting, but yet Paul says this is a false position, and God has never taught it that way. Timothy, you need to be careful, chapter 1, about people who will come along and try to twist the truth to their own device. You need to be careful, Timothy, chapter 4, because people will come along and try to teach a fancy new view, a new philosophy, attempting to be more spiritually minded when really it is not truthful at all. Timothy, you need to be careful, chapter 6, because people will come in trying to teach things that they were never really intended to teach, nor should they teach those things. They do not come from God. You know why, Timothy? Because truth really matters. Now, when I was reading through First Timothy, I was seeing this point coming up over and over again. Paul is admonishing him, be careful what you believe. Be careful what you accept. Be careful what you teach. Listen to what people are saying. Because the reality of the matter is a lot of what is taught and a lot of what is said is destructive in nature. And it doesn't really foster spiritual growth. You've got to be careful about these things, Timothy, because truth matters. Only truth can set us free. John chapter 8 and verse 32. Only the Word of God, spiritual truth. John chapter 17 and verse 17. And we live in a day that's very much like the days of Timothy, where somebody's always coming around with some new idea, some changed view. But truth really matters. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and analyze that particular passage just for a moment. He says in verse 3 of our study today, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, the idea of, the idea of a different teaching, Sometimes the word doctrine is used for teaching. Sometimes the word teaching is used for the idea of doctrine. They mean basically the same thing. They're very synonymous and used in synonymous terms. A lot of people will come by professing a different doctrine, a different teaching. And you've got to be careful. So he uses in a hypothetical type of situation, though the situation was very real at Ephesus. He says, now, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's admonishing him to be careful about that. A lot of people who believe in Christ 
and call themselves Christians really have come up with a different doctrine from what we read in the pages of the Bible. Oh, they're very fine people in many respects, and we respect them and we love them, but they've come up with a different doctrine than what we've learned from the lips of Christ and from inspired apostles. Sometimes, though you don't see it as much nowadays, but there used to be before uh, the idea of the words of Jesus were in red letters. And that was a selling point for certain Bible translations. The red letter edition of the King James or the red letter edition of this translation or that version. And the words of Jesus would be in red letters. And I suppose that the translators thought that was a helpful thing and you could go and open up the Bible and you could see the red letters of Jesus being forecast there and you could immediately go and see the words of Jesus. But it conveyed or implied the idea that the red letters were really important whereas the black letters weren't so important. And some people got the idea, I suppose, that, you know, they're all important words but they're not as important as the red letters. The red letter words are really more important than the black letter words. Now, the black letter words are okay, and the black letter words are inspired, but they're just the black letter words because the red letter words of Jesus, that's far more important. And a lot of people look at the Bible that way, that if it's the actual words of Jesus, that's more important than the black letters of Paul or Peter and James. You see, it's a different doctrine. And from that reason, to develop differing views with regard to the church. And that's the justification, attempted justification of many people and the views that they're taking about the church today. They're taking a different view about the church today because Jesus didn't say anything about that in the red letters. Now, Paul talked about it in the black letters. But we all are assuming here that the red letters are far more important than the black letters. The words of Jesus are far more important. And the idea of expanded role of women in worship service today is based on the alleged assertion, Jesus didn't say anything about that, therefore it must be okay. Now, Paul said something about it, but those are the black letters. Jesus didn't say anything about that in the red letters. The expansion of human sexuality today is actually based on the false notion. Jesus didn't say anything about that. So because of this new view of human sexuality, which in reality is sin, it's okay. Because only Paul talked about that. And so somehow, the ideas of Paul and the teaching of Paul are not as important as the actual words of Christ. But this is error. Error which can condemn us and will condemn us. It's a terrible error to reduce the teaching of inspired apostles and relegate that to a lower level. Let me explain why. If you'll turn with me to um, John chapter 16, you're going to see that all the scriptures are the inspired word of God. In John chapter 16, in fact, that whole section, John 14, 15, and 16, is a discussion of Jesus as he prepares his apostles for his leaving. And we've all read that one, 14, 
Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And what a beautiful passage that is. And he's preparing troubled hearts of the apostles in that regard because he is going to leave them. He's going to crucify, be crucified. He's going to be murdered on the cross. And he's going to be buried. And he's going to be raised from the dead. And he's going to ascend back to heaven. And Christ understands all of that. But his apostles are not aware of all that yet. And he tries to comfort them. And chapters 14 and 15 and John chapter 16 are involved in that. And I choose to go to John chapter 16. And I'm in verse 5. And I'd like to study that just for a brief moment with you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, verse 5. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They were filled with sorrow over the leaving of the Lord. Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. You may have the word advocate there or another... um, uh, word, but the word original word actually means helper. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's talking about, of course, the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Verse 11. So he's talking to the apostles, and he's telling the apostles that I will go away, but as I go away, I will send the comforter to you. I I, I will send the helper to you, the one who's going to help you in this matter. He goes on in verse 12, and he makes it very clear that he's speaking to the apostles there. Some people have actually gone to John chapter 16 and thought he was talking to them, but he's talking to the apostles. They're the ones that are going to receive the the helper, this individual, Christ our advocate, and of course the Holy Spirit, this divine counselor which God was going to send them. Verse 12, I have things to say to you, you who? The apostles. But you, the apostles, cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He, the Spirit of truth, will guide you, the apostles, into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you all the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus said. For he, the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He's going to take my words the Holy Spirit, and give them to these specially chosen men and inspire them in the teaching of the Word of God. It's not that the words of Jesus are only in red. The whole New Testament are the words of Jesus. The Holy Spirit took the words of Jesus and gave it to the apostles. Jesus said, well, I couldn't tell you everything now, but I'm going to leave you, and I'm going to send this comforter, this helper, who's going to lead you and guide you. He will guide you into all the truth. Not some of the truth, but all the truth. And he'll tell you what to say by means of this miraculous inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These apostles, not me, not you, the apostles were able to know and to say the mind of Christ to the world, even though Christ had gone back to heaven, 
ascended back to God the Father. The words of the New Testament are the words of Christ. It's not just the words of Paul, but the inspired words of Christ himself that was given to Paul by means of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. This Bible's the inspired Word of God, all of it. It's not just red letters that we need to pay attention to. It's all the letters we need to pay attention to. They're all the words of Christ by inspiration given to the apostles. Colossians chapter 3 is the passage that I have in mind. I'm thinking about verse 15 and 16. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Isn't that a great verse? And verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Do you think he's just talking about the red letters when he says the word of Christ? Colossians 3, 16, he's talking about all the word of God, all the New Testament. Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You can read that Bible passage from your own Bible. It comes from Colossians 3, and it's verse 16. And he said, let Christ's word dwell. The word dwell means to live. Let the word of Christ live in you richly. Let it fill your heart and let it fill your life and be guided by and directed by it, knowing all along that it is the word of Christ. Not just red letters, black letters, it's all. The inspired word of God. Some would come along and say, <clears throat> let's listen to the red letters. And let's just consider the red letters in this particular matter. Paul makes clear it's all the Word of God. In my lesson text today, 1 Timothy chapter 6, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the words inspired by Paul, Peter, James, Luke, all the inspired writers of the Testament. It all comes from God, the Holy Spirit, which are the words of Christ himself. We don't just pick out a few words in red letters to follow, but we look at the entirety of the Bible, the New Testament, which is our faith, our guide, and what leads us in this life how we worship God. There's another phrase in our text today you and I need to come uh, become aware of and pay special attention to him in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 3. In this particular word, you'll recognize it. He says the sound words. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the what? Sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The sound words are the words which produce spiritual health. The word uh, sound or faithful words are words which produce spiritual well-being. They are the sound words. You might have in your translation the good words, the spiritually good words, the sound words. These are the words that are going to help us spiritually and our spiritual well-being. Um, it actually goes back to a word which we get our word hygiene to be healthful and to be helpful and to be pure. Here are the sound words, the pure words of uh, Jesus Christ. And those are the words that actually produce the spiritual health. 
That's the only kind of words that will produce spiritual health. Notice as he said over there in chapter 4 and verse 6, he admonishes Timothy as a good minister. He said, now this is what a good minister is going to do, Timothy. First Timothy 4, 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. This translation has good doctrine or sound teaching you might have. It means the same thing over and over again. We have reminder after reminder. We got to remember this particular matter. We've got to be careful about accepting and embracing the sound words. You know why? Because truth matters, and we've got to get this right. We've got to be careful only to accept the sound words, the faithful words that we read from the pages of the Bible. You know, godliness doesn't... I want to be a godly person. You want to be a godly person. But godliness doesn't just happen. It just doesn't work that way. In fact, sometimes we think if I go home today after church, I'll automatically become a godly person. Or I'll stumble into it some way or another along the way. Godliness doesn't just happen. To be more like God. To have the right kind of that I should have with my fellow man. To be more like Jesus every day doesn't just automatically happen. We've got to do something. Turn with me to 2 Peter. The book of 2 Peter does this in a unique way, and I like it. I like the way Peter handles the problem. He's handling the problem of false teachers also in 2 Peter. And uh, <clears throat> he tells us uh, how to handle the matter in the proper way. Now, normally you would think about, here's the problem, and here's the solution. And a lot of times Bible writers will present it that way. They present the problem, and then here's the solution to the problem. But Peter doesn't do it in that way. In Second Peter, he says, here's the solution. Now, I want to tell you what the problem is, chapter 2 and chapter 3. And I like the way he handles that. Right up front, he tells me what needs to be done. Right up front, he's telling me what the solution is to the problem. And then he develops the problem along the way. And he gets to the heart of the matter of the solution in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And with virtue, oh, there it is, knowledge. Sound words. Now, the word virtue right there is a word which means to be Christ-like. I'm, I'm going to be morally excellent. Link seven of these virtues together. And it seems as you read them carefully that one builds on the other. And he starts with this matter of virtue, and he works his way through the seven. And as you get through the seven, you can see how one contributes to that, that one that came before. And this one contributed to the one that came before that. And there's sort of a causal connection between each one of the seven virtues. If I want to be more Christ-like, more excellent in my living day by day, then I've got to make every effort to supplement to my faith virtue. And I get up in the morning and I say to myself, I want to be more Christ-like. And shouldn't that be the goal of every Christian? Today, I'm going to be more like Jesus than I was yesterday. 
Isn't that the way we ought to be? Uh, today's a new day. And I'm going to be more like Christ today than I was yesterday. And then another new day, and I get up that morning, and I'm going to be better today than I was the day before. I'm going to be a better Christian today. How? By living this virtuous life. But then connected with that word virtue is this word knowledge. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. I've got to know the sound words before I can live the virtuous life. You see the causal connection between the two. It's one thing to want to do something. It's another thing to know how to do something. If I don't know how to live the virtuous life, if I don't have the sound words before me, if I don't have the hygienically pure, the sound, healthy words to go by, to learn, to understand, I can't really live the virtuous life. I've got to know what God has said for me to live the way God wants me to live. Christianity surely is that kind of religion. That's Paul's point to Timothy. If you want to live the Christian life, you've got to know what the Christian life's about because connected to virtue is knowledge, the sound words, the healthy words that I need to know and understand and apply to my life. I've got to work at that. He says it's not automatically going to happen to you when you go home for lunch one day. You've got to make every effort for this very reason. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. You've got to work at it, and it's going to take everything you've got. Every effort to live this virtuous life, to be more like Jesus. And before I can do it, i got to know what it's about. That's why the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Isn't that a beautiful statement, Acts chapter 17? And I turn to it just for a brief moment to emphasize uh, what Luke records for us in that wonderful journey of Paul. Now these Jews, verse 11, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily, to see if these things were so. Why'd they do that? Because truth matters. It really matters. In living the virtuous life and knowing what the virtuous life is, how to do it and how to apply it. Now these Jews are more noble than those in Thessalonica. They receive the word with all eagerness. They're making every effort to study and consider and to understand this is what the Bible is saying. Uh, this is what Christ meant. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. And this is how this applies to me because I know there's a lot of nonsense going on out there. And I've got to be careful about it. And I've always got to be on guard because the Bible warns me about that matter. Because it is truth that sets us free and not error. The sound words that makes the difference and not the error. But he tells us some out there have the wrong motive. And I'm sorry to say some people do. Now I'm back in my text. I'm in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I've looked at a couple of points about chapter, verse 3. Now I want to look at a few things about verse 4. It's a powerful verse, isn't it? He's talking about, And teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Who? The one who teaches the different doctrine. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching 
that accords with godliness, he, the one teaching the different doctrine, is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Sometimes people have the wrong motive. And they will try to use the word advantage. Paul uses the word conceited. That's the word that's translated for a self-centered individual. J.B. Phillips translated it this way. These are his words, not mine. He says, and when he comes to this verse, he is a conceited idiot. The reason J.B. Phillips translated it that way, he's trying to get at the sense of what Paul's saying in verse 4. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And that's how J.B. Phillips rendered that verse. He's a conceited idiot. He has the wrong motives. He tries to use self-centeredness as the means and the rule to live by. It is a self-centered type of attitude. What can I get out of it? He's not so concerned about building you up. He's not so concerned about your spiritual well-being. He's not so concerned about my spiritual growth as he is advancing himself. He is conceited. He is knows nothing. He's conceited and he wants to advance himself, whether it is by popularity or money or wealth. And it almost reminds you of some of the, the get-rich-quick type of preachers that we have today in our own day and time, which are more concerned about the contribution which you send them than they are actually dispensing the truth which God has given us all. He's more concerned about himself or herself conceited, self-centered. Some have the wrong motive. We've got to be careful about the sound words because sometimes people come in with a wrong motive and they try to preach and teach for the wrong reasons. What is the right reason? Paul gives us the example of the right reason. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and it just, you know, the Bible could almost fall open at any of Paul's epistles and one find the great motive that he has. He's very clear about his motive in preaching and teaching. Notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I'll read verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. His motive is toward them. He's concerned about them more than he is himself. That's the right kind of motive. Skip over there to chapter 2. And if you'll notice in about verse 5, I'm in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm trying to look at the motive behind the preaching and the teaching of the Apostle Paul and emulate that kind of motive. In 1 Thessalonians 2 and 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse, nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. I just read for you 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This book is filled with that. The writings of Paul are filled with that. 
concern for them, love for them. We didn't come for the glory. We didn't come for the greed, and God is our witness in the matter. We came like a loving, nursing mother to care for you, to help you, to be concerned with you. We taught you the gospel, and we did so because you were dear to us. You were important. That's the motive that one ought to have with regard to the Word of God. As I said, I could go along on and on with regard to the motive of the man who's so sincere, inspired of God. Turn with me to Romans 10. I, I enjoy reading this passage. and In Romans chapter 10, he's dealing with the Jews and their rejection of Christ. And this is a very powerful section, a doctrinal section in the book of Romans. And he comes to Romans chapter 10, he says in verse 1, Brothers, here's his motive. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That's my heart's desire for you. His motive is not for personal gain. His motive is not for personal ambition. It is not a matter of greed with this individual. It is not a matter of money for this individual. This individual desires their salvation. And Paul warns them, sometimes people will come with the wrong motive teaching the Word of God. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. 1 Timothy 6, verse 4. He has an unbelieving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. Notice what he says there in verse 5. And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Depraved and deprived. He takes advantage of them. Now, I have to say that not all false teachers are that way. I don't think Paul is saying every false teacher falls into that category of coming with the wrong motive. Sometimes they will come with the right motive. Sometimes just because he has the wrong message doesn't mean that he automatically has the wrong motive. Sometimes the motive is very sincere. Sometimes the motive is very right and very true. However, they're not giving or teaching the right message. Just because the motive is right doesn't make it the right message. And it's a pretty easy thing for me to spot a guy and say, that guy's got the wrong motive. Uh, that guy's out for himself. It's a pretty easy thing for me to resist the fella who's got the wrong motive, who's filled with greed, who's doing this just for personal ambition and wealth and popularity. I can spot that a mile away, and you can too. And it's a very easy thing for us to resist that. But what about the fellow who has the right motive, and he has a very sincere heart, but he comes with the wrong message? That's going to be harder to resist. We've got to be careful there, to heed only the sound. We've got to be careful to recognize and resist 
the individual who comes preaching and teaching God's Word, so they say, but with a sincere heart, very sincere in their love for other people and their love for God, but the message is just wrong, and we've got to be very careful to resist the individual who comes with the right motive, but he's got the wrong message. The message does not square with what we read from the matters of the Word of God, the truth of God. It's going to take courage on our part to do as Paul has admonished us to do here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 because God wants us to become what Jesus is. He wants us to be the children of God according to the New Testament Scripture. He knows that we must repent of our sins and change our wicked way of life. He knows that. And he's admonished us and commanded us to do that. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. Now God commands all men everywhere to repent. You must repent. Well, let's suppose somebody comes along and says, well, you don't have to repent. Well, you don't have to change your life. God's just going to accept you the way you are and where you are. Well, I know even though he's very sincere, I've got to be very careful with that because I know God has said I must repent. And God has said that I must confess my faith, Romans 10, 9 and 10. But someone comes along and says, it doesn't matter about that. Well, I know that I've got to be very careful there to follow only what I read from the pages of the New Testament, the sound, healthy words that will give me the spiritual health that I need and the virtue that I want to live by. And someone comes along and says, well, you don't really have to be baptized. Even though the Bible teaches that I must be immersed in water for the remission of my sins, well, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 he that believeth and is baptized, Jesus said, Mark chapter 16, verse 15 and 16. And it's very clear what Jesus is telling me to do. Well, who should I believe here? Here's a person who has a very sincere heart, and I really admire them for what they've done, or the book that they've written, or the crowd that assembles behind them. To whom shall I listen? I must listen to the healthy words. Paul says, Timothy, I want to warn you about something. Here's the warning. Truth matters. If we don't get this right, we're not going to be pleasing in the sight of God. And the only way to get it right is to know the truth which will make us free. John 8, verse 32. Only truth makes us free, not error. Am I speaking to someone today who knows the truth sufficiently well? That they want to do what God has said in the pages of the Bible. To repent of sin, confess their faith, be immersed in water for the remission of sins. Be the child of God that you read about in the pages of the Bible. You've come sufficiently to that point in time where you know the truth. Let's do that today and become a child of God. Listen to the sound words, the healthy words that makes us free from the guilt of sin. Perhaps you don't understand that well. Let's study the matter together. Let's you and I get our Bibles out and let's sit down and study what the Bible has authorized for us to believe and what God really wants for our lives. And then we'll do it. We'll sit down and we'll study the Word of God. We'll look at the New Testament. Then we'll apply it properly to our lives and then we will do that. Am I speaking to someone today who has been faithful but you've fallen away? You've allowed the love of this world to become so important to you that you've forgotten your love for Christ. You ought to repent of that. This world's passing away. One day it'll be gone. 
We have to be faithful to Christ all the days of our life. And someone says, well, you know, I just didn't start out well. The point is finish well. Finish well by being faithful and obedient to God Almighty and to His Christ who died and was raised from the dead for our salvation. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.